Welcome to the OA Virtual Kitchen Sink Meeting Podcast. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroup at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live and how to donate to support this meeting and our podcasts. The opinions expressed on the Kitchen Sink Podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent OA as a whole. And now, our speaker. Hi, I'm Kim, and I am a compulsive overeater. And I discovered when I got to Overeaters Anonymous 12 years ago that I'm an exercise bulimic and a sugar addict and a compulsive dieter and a body obsessor and a restrictor and a lot of things that go along with this disease that I didn't understand before I got here. Um, I got to learn about my disease in the program of Overeaters Anonymous. I really thought I just needed the right diet so I could be thin. And um, compulsive overeating and food addiction goes much deeper than that. Um, I want to thank, thank Dawn for, for um, changing my date to speak. I was supposed to be your speaker last week, and the, the speaker switched with me because my 74-year-old uncle, Jerry, dropped out of a massive heart attack the day I was supposed to fly back for his funeral. My fiancé or my ex-fiance, who's still my best friend 15 years later, got some tests done and went in for an emergency triple bypass and valve repair when I spent the last week in the ICU with him. And um, you know what? Life has been in session. And the fact that I didn't have to, to spend the last week face down in an ice cream carton is the miracle of my recovery in Overeaters Anonymous. Um, my abstinence date is November 13th of 2010, and my bottom line abstinence is no no recreational sugar. If it looks like dessert, it's none of my freaking business. I don't eat lookalikes. I don't know if they would trigger me or not, but the truth is, is I don't want tofu-based, non-dairy, sugar-free, whipped, frozen dessert. You know what I want. I want the real thing. So I don't mess with it. I also don't eat chips and crackers, anything cheesy, salty, crunchy in a box or a bag. I eat in a blackout and wonder where they all went. And if I'm sad when food is gone, then it probably needs to be gone from my from my food plan. Um, I My food plan is three meals a day and two optional snacks, which I usually eat. Um, I know that some people call their meals and snacks part of their abstinence, but I call that my food plan, what I do plan to eat. And um, if I have an extra apple because I'm working late at night or something on a project, that that is not a break of my abstinence. That's a change in my food plan. Um, I've heard people I've heard people share in meetings when when they're the leader that you know. I was struck abstinent and never had another compulsive food thought in my life. And I would love to tell you that's been my experience, but I still have the brain of a compulsive overeater. And, um, and I, I do 95% of the time I'm free from food obsession, body obsession, all of the things that used to rule my life. But Last week, when Megan was in ICU and Uncle Jerry was gone and I couldn't be there and I still had a stressful job to attend to, I'd be a liar if I didn't say that 
comfort foods didn't sound like a good option. And um, my, my, I think I'm down about 80 pounds from my top weight. And this isn't even, I couldn't find my digital pictures. That's, that's probably, that's the year I came into OA, but I was probably, I don't even know how much I weighed. I was a size 20. I had abrasions on my belly from how tight my clothes were because I wouldn't go up another size. I couldn't bend over and tie my shoes without breaking a sweat. The, I think I weighed in at 207, 210, but I probably, I, I'm sure I was easily 220 um, at my top weight. And then um, in program, this is me in 2017 at, at, at 117. And I got thinner than I meant to get in recovery. And then thin became my higher power. That was my new goal weight. I was going to keep it no matter what. People were asking me if I was sick. <laughs> my doctor that does my skin stuff told me my face looked sucked up and sunken in. And I just thought everyone was jealous because I was thin. And so my whole life, I thought if I could just be thin, I could be happy. And this is an inside job in Overeaters Anonymous. It is not an outside job. And now I'm 56 years old. So if I want to, you know, make my goal being a Victoria's Secret model or a swim, you know, sports illustrated swimsuit model, I'm probably setting myself up for frustration because things are starting to move and sag and, and um, it can't be about the physical. It can't all be about the numbers. And that's, it was all about the numbers my whole life. Um, I was a little bit of a pudgy kid and a, a hardcore sugar addict. My best friend's family owned the Dairy Queen, and it's the only reason I was friends with Debbie Martin. We, I mean, that that's a horrible thing to say, but that's what we had in common. You know, other kids were at the swimming pool and the skating rink to socialize, and I had social anxiety, and I was at the concession stand counting out my change to get snacks. I was riding my bike to the 7-Eleven to buy all the penny candy, nickel candy, back when there was such a thing, on an outer road to the highway that I wasn't supposed to be on. I was out at, after dark chasing the ice cream truck up the street. Like food, food was my, my buffer between life and the pain and me from the very, very beginning of my life. And I know now that my my dad was emotionally abusive. I wouldn't have called it that then. But when you're a kid tiptoeing around, trying to be good and quiet and not piss anybody off, it, it tends to make you hungry. And I know a lot of us have have some trauma in our past and used food as a tool to dull the pain. And you know what? Food worked until it didn't work, but it actually never really worked. I, I'm an I'm an excellent dieter. I can lock it down, white knuckle it. And I, I've been at goal weight six times at Weight Watchers and would be pissed off when they wouldn't give me another gold star. They're like, Kim, it's the same 60 pounds. But I lost it. You know, I did the cabbage soup diet. I, I did body for life body transformation and lost 36 pounds in 12 weeks and took my muscle pictures and gained 18 pounds back in two weeks. You know, when people around us, are like, oh, I thought you were on a diet. And it's like, get away from my cake. You know, like 
people didn't know how to take me. People would see me and I'd either gained 60 or 80 pounds or lost 60 or 80 pounds and people wouldn't recognize me. And then I would be pissed that when people would comment on my weight, but it's all I thought about, talked about, lived for. I um, When I got to Overeaters Anonymous, the step two, I love the OA 12 and 12 because it's specific to food addiction and food behaviors. But when I read, we had to look with complete honesty at our lives. We see that where eating is concerned, we have acted in an extremely irrational and self-destructive manner. Under the compulsion to overeat, many of us have done things no sane person would think of doing. We have we had driven mile, miles in the dead of night to satisfy a craving for food. We've eaten food that was frozen, burnt, stale, or even dangerously spoiled. We've eaten food off other people's plates, off the floor and off the ground. We have dug food out of the garbage and eaten it. And until I got to recovery in Overeaters Anonymous, I thought I was the only person who did those demoralizing, horrible things with food. And I got here and I found out I'm just another compulsive overeater. And I, I had been working the 12 steps in another program for a decade when I got here. And I had made a lot of progress in my life and changed and grown and found a higher power and stopped harming other people and been of service in the world. But I hadn't stopped harming me because I hadn't put down my first addiction, food. It had, you know, I gave up drugs and alcohol and spree spending and sex and cigarettes, but you're not going to take away my cupcake. F you. And I don't know who I thought was trying to take it away. Like, no, no one was trying to make me change. But I was so miserable by the time I got here. And there's, there's an extra component of shame in compulsive overeating that there's not with my other addictions. Not everyone who see, you know, sees me walking down the street or saw me walking down the street knew that I had those other addictions. But when I was walking in and out of Lane Bryant, hoping that I could find something big enough to cover my body, everybody knew that I had a problem with food. And I really had to work on the shame component and forgiving myself and treating myself with the same kindness and love that I treat other people with when I work the steps in Overeaters Anonymous. You know, first, I was ashamed that I was obese. And then I was ashamed that I lost 80 pounds or maybe even more, and had all this loose skin. And then I was ashamed to tell you I had a tummy tuck to fix the disfigurement of my body and put everything back where it belonged because I thought that sounded vain and shallow. And I'm here to tell you now, F shame. I mean, I have friends that don't want to tell people they had a gastric bypass in program because they don't want to be judged. And whatever tools outside of program we pick up, what you know, whether it's a commercial diet or gastric, like I don't judge any of that. Whatever tools work for you in your recovery in Overeaters Anonymous, good for you. And Overeaters Anonymous takes a level of honesty that I didn't need my other program either. I don't ever have to walk in a bar again, but I have to eat. I have to eat every day. And I have to be honest with myself about what my alcoholic foods are and my alcoholic behaviors around food so so I can be free of them. And 
you know, I told you all my bottom line abstinences, but there are foods that still get too sexy sometimes. You know, I've, I've walked a, a protein bar down to the dumpster. I've walked, you know, my cashew butter down to the dumpster. I've walked a loaf of whole grain bread that's usually safe down to the dumpster. And if, if anything's calling to me from the pantry, it doesn't happen very often, but, but I'll, I'll go through it in the trash. But Overeaters Anonymous, I had to work the steps in this program. I had worked the steps in other programs. I had to work the steps specific to food and food behaviors and the way I had treated myself and the way it had limited my life and crippled me socially, in my jobs, creatively. I don't know about you, but I, I was always waiting. When I get to goal weight, then I can find a boyfriend. When I get to goal weight, then I deserve a good job. When I get to goal weight, I'll buy clothes that fit me right. When I get to goal weight, I'll perform on stage because then I'll be worthy of the attention. Like I had my life on hold until I was the perfect weight and I had to come to Overeaters Anonymous and work these steps and get down to the underlying causes and conditions Man, if if you wonder what's eating you, just put down the food and and you'll start to figure it out. Like I was so wildly uncomfortable when I got to Overdue Anonymous and put down my alcoholic foods and stopped my alcoholic food behaviors. I, if you're crawling out of your skin and you're new, you're in exactly the right place. If you're having a panic attack and want to get the hell out of this meeting and run away. I feel you. Me too. It like took me three meetings of like staring at the door thinking I could make a break for it. Like doing the work in this program and putting down the food is not for the faint of the heart. It's for the very courageous. It, it's for it's for those of us that want to finally live our best lives. Um, I was just working for a, a production company, really nice people. And they do all the shows on TLC, um, thousand pound sisters, my thousand pound life. And I had, I had to watch footage of those shows to be familiar with their programming so that when I interviewed with them, I could talk about the, the, you know, the shows that they made. And it was so excruciating and heartbreaking to me to look at people that weighed five or 600 pounds that couldn't get out of the house and were killing themselves with food and had codependent family members bringing them food. And it, it breaks my heart because I know there is a solution. It breaks my heart because I'm here in recovery and that's not my reality. And it, it very well could have been, you know, I've had friends relapse in this program and gain a hundred pounds in six months and be unrecognizable that's that's the way I eat. When I eat, it's not, you know, nibbling with a pinky. I still find myself, I, I don't know about anybody else, but during COVID, did you start eating with your fingers and stuff that when we got back out in the wild, you had to go, oh, I can't lick my fingers in front of people. Just me? I, I don't know. So it's, um, I'm so grateful for my recovery from compulsive overeating. And um, it starts with putting down the food, but then but then it's much deeper than that. Um, my inventory 
my fourth step in Overeaters Anonymous, a lot of it was for me because no one treated me as badly as I treated me in my disease of compulsive overeating. I mean, I would stand and look in the mirror and scream in my own, you fat bitch. You're, I would call myself worthless. I would say things about myself and to myself that I would never say about or to another human being. So learning to treat myself with a little dignity and grace and acceptance has been a huge part of my recovery. And if I'm treating myself with kindness and love, it's a lot easier to go out in the world and, and give everyone else a little grace and treat them with kindness and love as well. Um, I also had to take a look at the trauma of my childhood, you know, and, and things that happened that, that I ate over to push down. I mean, when, when I put the food down, emotion started spewing out of me. I'd be laughing in appropriate times. I would be crying for no apparent reason, but it's because I pushed those tears down, you know, when I was a little girl and most of my life, um, I kind of had a tough girl persona, like, you know, when I got nothing bothers me, like I'm, I'm Teflon slides right off, but it didn't slide right off. It, it slid right into my mouth. Um, being of service in Overeaters Anonymous is awesome. If um, Excuse me, that's five minutes left. Got it. Five minutes. If you haven't, um, you know, taken a service position, whether it's, you know, at, at a meeting level, like everybody running the meeting today or a service level. I was the um, special events and fundraiser chair for two, two years um, on the, the San Fernando Valley board. And it deeply connected me in program. I met so many more of my fellows and it helped me be in a, of service in a way that I hadn't been before. Um, but this program based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is about one compulsive overeater reaching out to another. And there's, there's been no greater joy in my life than sponsoring women and and walking them through the steps of Overeaters Anonymous and, and watching their lives change. And we can all see the physical transformation in each other, um, which is being in a normal size body is awesome. Like right now, I, prob I probably weigh a little more than I would like to. But again, I don't have a bikini model shoot coming up. And my BMI is right in the middle of a perfect, healthy range. Um, but the the emotional and spiritual transformation of working the steps of Overeaters Anonymous is amazing. And to see the light come on in another woman's eyes when she's doing this work, to watch her find her self-worth and learn to love herself, to see her be of service to others in the world. Um, you know, in the promises it talks about, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we can see how our experience can benefit others. And that's never more true than when I'm sponsoring another woman and walking her through the steps. And she is ashamed or afraid to share something with me that she said or did in her disease. And I can just share my experience, strength and hope in my own big, hairy, gory, 
compulsive overeating story and um, give her something to relate to. Um, there is a level of acceptance in love in OA that I haven't even seen in other 12-step programs. We don't care if you're eating. We don't care if you're starving yourself to death. We hope you're abstinent or you get that way someday. But wherever you are in your recovery or even in your relapse, just please don't go anywhere. Please keep coming back. Please let in the love. Please let us love you until you learn to love yourself. Because I hated my own guts when I got to Overeaters Anonymous. And I love and respect myself today. And I can go out in the world and live my highest purpose, my highest good. I can be of service to others because I'm not obsessed with my own appearance, the size of my clothes, how many minutes of cardio I did, how many grams of fat or sugar was in the whatever I ate and how many minutes I need to exercise to burn it off. Like I'm bad at math and all of, all of those numbers running through my head when I'm in the food is exhausting. And I didn't understand that self-centeredness wasn't just, you know, grandiosity and egotism, that self-centeredness is also self-destruction and self-deprecation because it's still me just thinking about me all the time. And I'm so grateful that I can be others-centered in my recovery in Overeaters Anonymous. I'm grateful. I'm sitting cross-legged in a chair talking to you right now, and I couldn't bend over and tie my shoes without getting sweaty and shaky when I got here. Physical recovery is pretty awesome, too, but the spiritual and emotional change is, is enormous. I love you, and I wish recovery for all of you. Thank you for letting me share. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader, those are my own, and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you have asked a question last week, please wait until the first three questions have been asked before raising your hand. If you have a question, please click the raise your hand icon. Good morning and thank you, Kim. Excuse me. Bless you. Um, <laughs> thank you. I'm, uh, I'm not sure if I can word this question uh, in an understandable way, but I'm going to try. I could very, very deeply relate to the dis feelings you described before coming into program, which for me was like um, every negative experience or feeling I have was, was because of my body. And that was my belief system. And that was the focus of all my energy. And thankfully that belief system is being removed, but there is this, I'm finding existential angst that comes in behind it. Cause like removing that belief leaves a vacuum. I don't know if that makes sense. So I'm wondering if you had that experience and if so, what did you fill that void up with? Thanks. Hi, no, I think that totally makes sense. And, um, The way I built self-esteem and recovery was one esteemable act at a time. And the way I filled that void of self-destruction and self-obsession was one act of self-love at a time. 
I didn't understand that self-care was not selfish before the program of Overeaters Anonymous. And so every act of self-care, what I fill it up with is outreach calls and prayer and meditation and exercise and planning healthy, healthy food and walking my dogs and being present, being present in my life. Like if I'm having a conversation with someone, really listening to them. If, if I'm on a walk, smelling the flowers, not looking at my cell phone, which I'm not always good at, by the way. Eating was all about escaping any connection or, or vulnerability. And now self-care and recovery is about filling that void with connection and love and purpose and all the good things that we get in recovery. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Thank you. Thank you. Patricia. Hi, thank you for, thank you so much for your powerful share. Um, you talked about um, you could do any diet that, you know, then there was like hesitancy going into the room and the meeting. And I was curious, like when you did your fourth step, did you just white knuckle and just go for it? Or was there hesitancy or like, how did you approach it? There was definitely hesitancy to do it at first. And um, I mean, doing my fourth step was kind of like getting my first sponsor. Like I, I didn't want to ask anyone to sponsor me. And then I went to babysit my friend's kids and I had a few days absent and they wanted to bake cookies. And I literally was in a flop sweat, having a panic attack. And I picked up the phone and asked someone to be my sponsor. And I did the same thing with my first fourth step. I, I dreaded it, even though I, I mean, I had done damage control doing the four step in the other program, but taking a look at what I'd done to myself in this four step was scary, but I made an appointment with my sponsor. And so those last few days, I'd started writing furiously and got it all down on paper. And when I sat down with Sandy to read that first four step, she said, oh, sweetie, you're a people pleaser with low self-esteem. And you could have knocked me out of my chair because I had no idea. I was still buying the Susie badass, nothing bothers me thing. And my whole life, I was trying to make other people like me by being what I thought they wanted me to be. And, and she, she pegged me before we even started, you know, my fifth step. So, so yeah, kick and scream and do it anyway. That's, that's always what I do. (laughs) Hope that helps. Joan. Thank you so much. So my question is, you you said about, you know, recovery in another program and how you never have to go into a bar again, but we've got to eat three times a day and how it really takes it to the next level and the courage. And I wondered if you could talk more about that and how to cope with like this next level and what it takes and going deeper. You know, for me, it's it, it's feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Like my whole life, I've avoided all those negative emotions and all those scary places. But in Overeaters Anonymous, I have my sponsor and my fellows. And no matter what I'm facing or what I'm afraid of, someone in the room has been through it and can hold my hand and guide me through it with dignity and grace. You know, about five years ago, my mom was ill. And they they ruled out ALS. And I was like, oh, thank God, because that'd be the worst thing ever. Well, they misdiagnosed her and it was ALS. 
but I could show up because I wasn't in the food and, and care for my mom. And then I lost her and I was like, okay, God, I can't do my mom and my dog. No way. And then my dog passed away. She was tired from taking care of me through the mom stuff, I guess. But my point is no matter what I'm afraid of or what I'm facing in my life, the guy, the job, sick parents, physical illness of our own, someone in the room has been through it. So it's not a boogeyman. Someone already knows the way out of the dark. And all I have to do is be willing to ask for help and guidance, which I didn't need to, didn't know how to do before I got here. And I'm grateful that usually I can have the humility to do that and ask for that, that help. Bob. Yes, I'm Bob, compulsive operator, recreational sugar addict. Thank you very much for your share. Um, do you have a morning routine and can you tell us what it is? You know, I have a morning routine and I haven't done it in the last couple of weeks because work has been insane. So to tell you I do it perfectly would be a lie. But um, the most important part of my morning routine, I get up, first I walk the dogs, but some kind of prayer and meditation to, I didn't understand prayer and meditation, like when I'm not supposed to ask for things for myself. And I had such a busy mind, I'd be like, what's my will? What's God's will? What's my will? What's God's will? I asked for God's will, but then I have to get quiet and do a little med- I can't hear the answer if I'm running around in hamster mode. So meditation, and I always wanted to do meditation, right? There is no right. It's just me getting quiet and asking God for, you know, for the answers, for the guidance. I I didn't have to have a, I got a transcendental meditation coach and got my own mantra and thought if I didn't do 30 minutes twice a day, I wasn't doing enough, but that's not the case. Um, so that's it. That's it for me is, is walking the dogs, moving meditation, and then actual prayer and meditation, and then outreach calls during the day. And I don't have a set routine for written step work, but I have to be actively. My sponsor tells me that guiding someone else through the steps is not me actively working the steps, that I've got to be working the steps myself, too. And that, that's been my experience. Frank. Thank you. Thank you, Kim, for a great share. And um, I'm going to start with a question that came in uh, through the chat that I'm asking anonymously, and then I have a question of my own. So, um, so sorry to hear about your challenging times of late. I have also gone through something similar, but I went back to binging and binged my way through it. What did you do on a daily basis to get through those difficult days without picking up? Ask for help. I mean, it's, Working the step, I mean, I'm 22 years in the other program and 12 years in this program, and I was really good at being of service, like taking the meeting commitment or taking the board commitment or giving people a ride to the meeting or returning all of my outreach calls when people reached out for help. I wasn't good at asking for help and support. Like, sometimes I just have to text and be like, I'm, my ass is on fire, help me. Like, or I'm at the hospital and I'm freaking out. Can you can you talk to me for a minute? Um, 
no one can help me after I eat my alcoholic food because the craving, the obsession is already kicked in. And I think the pressure isn't, and the, the emotional challenges aren't the scary part. Fuck it is the most dangerous thing I can say. To hell with it. I'm just going to eat it. I think as compulsive overeater, it's like, I'm not going to reach out. I'm not going to ask for help. I'm going to eat it and you can't stop me. And then we call after we eat it and ask for help. And then we're further away to, you know, to be pulled back in. So I think the most important thing we do is ask for help before we take the first compulsive bite. But, but if we already took it, still ask for the help. Like I, I can't figure out any of this on my own and I can't fix my broken brain through the thinking of my broken brain. I have to ask for help and support. Um, and I'm sorry for whoever is going through a rough time too. I'm, I'm with you. Um, let me put my phone number on my box too. Everybody is, is welcome to reach out to me. And then Frank, what was your question? Okay. Well, thank you for just a lovely share. And I, Absolutely love your practical and sensible approach to our program. It's refreshing. And um, I just want to ask you, um, what are some of the challenges that you've been through that you're surprised you were able to get through through a program? And what are the ones that you're surprised you haven't been able to get through yet? Um, the ones that I've already mentioned for sure, my mom and the ALS, losing my dog that was 15, thinking I might lose Megan, who's no longer my romantic partner, but still my best friend. Um, all of those things were probably the most chance. I mean, losing jobs, losing boyfriends, all, all of that. Um, the one I'm still working on is, is dating and romantic intimacy. And I know that part of, part of that, was the body image stuff, but before the body image stuff was the daddy issue stuff. And, and I'm working through that now. And I, I wouldn't say that I'm not getting through it. I definitely am. It's just taken more, more work and a deeper dive than, than some of the other things have. It, it's, it's the final frontier and money learning how to be a grown up with money, you know, and plan for my financial future. Romance and finance, those two right there. That's what I'm still working on. We have about four and a half minutes left for question and answer. Okay, okay great. Ellie. Hi, Kim. Thanks so much for your share. It was great to see you. Great to hear you. Um, you've talked about the self-love that you have. Um, what if anything, did you do either in the fourth step for forgiving yourself? And in general, were there any amends that you made to self? Thanks. Thank you. I think the living amends to myself is the most important, like getting enough sleep, eating healthy food, being in my recovery programs. But my sponsor made me do some hard things when I wasn't ready, like look at myself in the mirror and say, I love you. Look at myself in the mirror and tell I meant I love you when I said I love you. It was hard. It, I didn't want to do it. And um, and now, like, my body is perfectly imperfect. But after watching my mom go through ALS and lose 
every physical movement and function, even down to swallowing and speech. I have scars and stretch marks and I, I, I get out of the shower naked and look in the mirror and go, I would totally do you sexy, sexy. <laughs> and yeah, most days I mean it. I, I can't get as close to the mirror as I used to when I inspected, but, um, but I am grateful that all my parts work and that I'm healthy. My friends have been through cancer. Like there, there are so, so many worse things than a few stretch marks or a little loose skin or whatever I think makes me hideous that no one else even notices. Don. Uh, thank you, Kim, for a wonderful share. The, um, uh, what is your concept of a higher power and how has it changed since you got to the program? You know, my higher, my concept of my higher power has changed. It's been like this my entire life. Um, I grew up in a Pentecostal fire and brimstone church as a kid. So I thought I was going to be punished and go to hell. And in recovery, I love that we get to make our higher power whatever concept we want it to be. Um, and to me today, my higher power is definitely not punitive because I don't believe my higher power can be all loving and want to punish me. <laughs> like that just doesn't even make sense to me. And so I don't think I can love myself and want to punish me either. So, um, to me today, higher power is definitely the bond that we have in recovery. You all were doing something I didn't know how to do when I got here, not compulsively overeat one day at a time. But higher power to me is that loving connection, that heart space. It's beauty, music, animals, laughter, children, all, all the beautiful stuff in the world is, is my higher power because I had to step out of all the negativity that I was in when I got here. And, and some days I like, why would God, you know, my dad says, why would God give your beautiful mother ALS? And God didn't give my mother ALS. It was some weird genetic, you know, mishap, but there are days that I question God. God can take it. God, God's big enough to let me wonder until I find my way back. And you are my conduit to my higher power, which I choose to call God. If I can't see the God in me, I can always see the God in you and find my way back to my higher power. <laughs>